2: This is Carpe Consensus. Join hosts Ben Schiller, Danny Nelson, and Cam Thompson as they seize the world of crypto.
1: Hello and welcome to Carpe Consensus. I'm your host, Danny Nelson, the managing editor of data and tokens at Coindesk. Now that might be new to you listeners, because Ben Schiller, our normal host host, Always picks a different title for me every week. I've been a reporter, a senior reporter, a deputy managing editor, a managing editor. I don't know. That might be my fault. I think it's his fault, though. Cam, though, what's your title?
0: I am Web3 Reporter, so.
1: Web3 Reporter.
0: Pretty much been the same the whole time.
1: Former Danny Nelson intern Cam Thompson, as her true title is. Yes. Hi, Cam. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing well, Danny. How's it going?
1: Uh, You know, we're having a party this week with uh, no parents, no rules, as they say. So Ben Schiller's out. That means we have run of the town and we're going to get into it this week with some really exciting content here on Carpet Consensus, which is, of course, the Coindesk show that digs deep, deeper than anything else into the Consensus world. Consensus being our upcoming festival in Austin, Texas, this week on Carpet Consensus, we're going to hear from David Morris, who is our columnist extraordinaire, and we're also going to get talking about some other big themes that are on our plate this week at Coindesk, including how we deal with AI. We're also going to talk about mango markets in Danny's dungeon, and Cam's corner is going to have some crazy NFT stuff, as always.
0: All right. As Ben always says, you know, now he's not here this week, but we can't skip out on the opportunity to say it. Let's get to it.
1: All right, Cam, let's get inside the desk. This week, I want to talk about AI. More specifically, I want to talk about how at Coindesk, we use AI in our stories. Now, the wider tech world has been paying attention to AI in a big way these past few months because OpenAI has come out with ChatGPT and DALE, DALE being the image generator and ChatGPT being the chatbot that is better than anything we've ever seen before. Now, in the long term, these technologies are probably going to push us out of a job. But for now, I'm very interested in understanding how we can use them to improve our own workflows. Kim, have you ever used ChatGPT or Dolly in any of your stories?
0: Danny, Danny, it's Dolly, just like Salvador Dolly, which I think is pretty cool because a lot of these images that Dolly's coming up with are pretty surrealist. So I've actually never used them in my stories. I have had dolly pictures created for me for stories. So I guess, I guess I actually have used it. But more so, I'm just having fun with some of the test cases. The other week, I was going to the gym, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I asked ChatGPT to write me a workout. And it did. Oh, my. And it was pretty good. But other than that, haven't really found many ways to integrate it into my workflow.
1: I have to ask, like, what was it? Was it, was it leg day? Was it, was it bicep? What's, what's going on with ChatGPT?
0: Yeah. So I asked it to write me a 45 minute workout where I started on the Stairmaster and then did just weights. So no equipment. And it made me a pretty nice workout. Had some allotted for the Stairmaster and then gave me some exercises to do. Some things I didn't really know what they were. So I think it's still trying to understand the type of language as to what some of these exercises were. But it was pretty cool. And I would do it again. And i Definitely copied someone off of Twitter who I saw asked ChatGPT to be their personal trainer and made them like an entire workout plan. So it's pretty cool.
1: That is amazing and also scary. But in my stories, I will say I've really taken to using four picturing images and scenes that you really can't find stock footage of. For example, in my latest story on mango markets, which we're going to get into later in the show, I was writing about federal regulators looking into, but not necessarily investigating, mango markets. And so I thought, hmm, I wonder if I could get to give me an image of a federal regulator looking at a mango with a magnifying glass. And lo and behold, it did. And it was a pretty good image. So I've used that in my story. And I'm looking forward to using these in more. So Kim, give me one story of yours that you just couldn't find an image of. I wonder if Dale could build it for you.
0: I mean, sometimes I'm writing a story about Uniswap or Aave, which respectively, those logos are a unicorn or a ghost. And sometimes you can get stock images of them, but eventually, you know, you keep using the same ones and you want to change it up. So, you know, we've created awesome photos of unicorns flying into the sky with dollar bills flying out of their behind. Oh my God. I mean, it's pretty cool how creative you can get with it. And although we are using it in our newsroom for creating these images, a lot of people are also using AI for creating NFTs. And I mean, I know that's not exactly what we're doing here, but it's really cool to see how the NFT space is adopting this technology. Danny, back to when you were talking about not having used any of these technologies in your stories, where do you see the opportunity to be able to bring ChatGPT into writing a news story, a feature, an opinion piece, maybe an opinion piece is a little bit of a stretch, but what what do you expect to use it for down the line?
1: I hope not to use it because the potential for these technologies is to completely displace a large part of my job. Now, maybe that's me being a Luddite because there are opportunities to streamline my operations. If I had ChatGPT writing simple summarization stories, But over time, I really do think this is going to disrupt the way that journalism is done and make it so that you're only going to have journalists for in-depth reporting, which is not a bad thing. But a lot of the summarization work that we currently do is just what we won't have to do in the future because ChatGPT is coming.
0: I agree. I think that a lot of these quick news stories that we do and summarizations especially it's super easy to just, in a few months, few years, when chat GPT is intelligent enough to be able to do that. It's, it's scary, the fact that a large part of our jobs could be taken away. And I am worried about what it's going to mean for the whole industry of journalism.
1: Despite all the potential these technologies have, I think it's still worth remembering that responsible disclosure is critical. Because one, it's not cool to just steal the AI's work. And two, the AIs don't already know everything that there is to know, and sometimes they're going to be off. There was an example in mid-January with CNET discovered to be using AI to write parts of its articles, and it didn't disclose this. And that just brings up a lot of issues, I think, because when we were writing a story, our bylines are on it. People know, at the very least, who to pillory when things are perceived to have gone wrong. And the same should be true with AI. If there are issues with stories, the readers should know where those issues came from, and the publications should be straightforward about their use of those technologies.
0: Absolutely. Having some type of disclosure at the bottom, saying that it was written with ChatGPT or any parts of it, definitely important, as we are all working out the kinks of this very new technology, something we're all learning and figuring out together.
1: Well, at least the ChatGPT doesn't have podcasts just yet, although they they might start writing scripts for us, so that might honestly be better. I'm really bad at riffing, so ChatGPT could clean me straight up.
0: It could be nice. It could be nice. But if they did have podcasts, they'd need to make sure to get the voices right.
1: Yeah, I'm just waiting for the technology to take us over. Like, ChatGPT could turn evil and tell you to do some exercise that it knows will kill you. And then that's how it will slowly creep and take over the world. And it'll have me go report on some story where I'll get kidnapped in Siberia or something. And so, you know, you died on the Stairmaster. I got kidnapped in Siberia. And then ChatGPT takes over the whole newsroom.
0: That's very possible. That is also another terrifying reality. Yeah. But we'll see. Until then, I, I will not die on the Stairmaster.
1: <laughs> we'll see what happens. We'll see. Hello.
3: <laughs> I, have to, I have to work my way into it. Hello, and welcome to Carpe Consensus. I'm David Z. Morris. I,
1: can you get something you, out of that? You, you sounded like you weren't so sure. You sounded like you weren't so sure that you were David Z. Morris. I, I wasn't convinced. Okay. All right, David Z. Morris, the host of Crypto Crooks. Welcome to the show, Chief Insights Columnist, David Z. Morris. Before we get into the later episodes of the series, just give our listeners a brief overview of what Crypto Crooks is and what you set out to discover in this first narrative podcast from the Coindesk podcast family.
3: Yeah. So uh, the very basics is Crypto Crooks is pretty much what it sounds like. We cover scams and, and frauds in the space, or as we like to say, scams, frauds, and bad ideas. So that, that broadens our, our umbrella a little bit because, well, we'll get into it, but one of the points is you can't always tell the difference between a scam and a bad idea. And we do fairly deep dives. So we're, we're finishing up our second season currently. That will come out uh, later in February. And so we've got two now that will be four episodes each. So several hours of content diving into uh, some of the most notorious crypto scams of, of all time. And season one, I think we started with a real natural BitConnect, which some people I think may actually be forgetting at this point. But uh, back in, in 2018 uh, was the most notorious crypto scam of all time.
0: So, David, I want to ask you, amid all of these crypto scams, frauds and crazy events we've seen across the industry in the past few months, why start with BitConnect? What are some of the key takeaways from this scam. Why start with this on the podcast?
3: Yeah, there are at least three reasons. And I'm not going to be able to remember all of them now that I just said three. One, one is that I'm a big reader. I'm a writer. I tell people sometimes I'm not a journalist first. I'm a writer first. And I just happen to be writing about stuff that actually happened. And so I'm a big believer in the idea that telling stories is how you understand the world in the most efficient and, and most lasting possible way. A lot of these crypto scams, you can read the news about them, you can go back and look at the stories, but it's very hard, and up to now, as far as I can tell, nobody has done this for BitConnect. It's very rare to get everything in one place, in sort of one big long narrative that will sort of help you put it all into one package in your mind so that you can can understand the ins and outs of everything that happened kind of uh, all at the same time as a, as a whole, rather than just in this fragmentary way that you get when you're following the news. And I think that BitConnect really set, I mean, they, they built on scams that had come before them, but they also really did set a lot of standards for how these scams work. You know, it's all about techno hype and that hasn't changed you're able to trick people a lot more easily when you tell them that they can't possibly understand what you're doing because it's so advanced, things like that. And, and also, again, BitConnect was a huge deal at the time. It's now being slightly forgotten. And so I think it's important for that reason too to go back and kind of talk about something that it is part of crypto culture and history, right? I mean, you might not ever have heard of BitConnect, but you know Carlos Matos going, hey, hey, hey. And, uh, and, and so the show is also there for people who just want to know what the memes are about. And then the third thing that I think is worth mentioning is, you know, BitConnect, it's not entirely over. The guy, Satish Kambani, who is alleged to have started it, is still somewhere. We don't know where he is. He's been indicted multiple times across the world, but nobody has found him yet. But it is mostly over. And the show, we try and focus as much as we can or kind of within reason on stuff that has already happened, right? Like we're not really in the business of exposing scams per se. Um, we're we're sort of looking back and and trying to help people understand them more deeply after they've happened. And so Bitconnect has had time to kind of settle out.
0: So David, how has the show been received so far? What has been some of the response from listeners in terms of really digging into this Bitconnect fraud?
3: One thing that has been really great to, to learn is just that people, once they start the show, are finishing it, um, which is exciting. We have really good, I guess, just data on how our audience is receiving it. We have also gotten a few really intriguing notes from people close to the situation, kind of on a few levels. We do these closed-ended seasons, and we're just getting started, so we're not entirely sure how we're going to format it but you know it does generate inbound information so we're learning more about the situation even though we're not describing this as like a like a live investigation we're not trying to do serial or anything but it does end up having some elements of that so we have we have had contacts from sources who have things to add to the story and part of our plan maybe is to put out some supplementary episodes later on as we explore that further information
1: do you want to go down that serial road like If we get a hot lead, are we in a position where we just pick up the microphone and go out into the field and start telling these crazy stories as they're unfolding? Or do you want to be more (laughs) of a historical look back and see what hath the dumpster fire wrought?
3: You know, Serial was investigating one guy's murder accusation. We're investigating, like, in some cases, multi-billion dollar companies who take these things very personally. And so we do try and be very, very careful and make sure that the information that we're putting out there has been carefully vetted. And so it does make it more challenging in a financial fraud situation to go out there and like allege something that hasn't been definitively shown. But there are huge depths of complexity to these things, and there are layers that even years afterwards we are continuing to pull back. And that's, I think, what is more important here. With BitConnect, for example, we're drawing on existing reporting and things that people have said. But back in 2017 or 2018, people in the United States were really concerned with what was going on in the United States relative to BitConnect. And I, for sure, and I was paying close attention, and I think a lot of other people missed the fact that this is very closely tied to India and Indian politics it was actually founded in Gujarat in uh, western India and we have a lot of sources in the podcast talking about that and kind of digging into the connections frankly between Bitconnect and powerful politicians in India and and so that's i think it's not you know new in the sense that we're discovering it right now but it is stuff that has not been covered before in a big Big way in the West.
0: So, David, we are already so excited that season two is coming up. Can you give us any preview, any teaser as to what this next season of Crypto Crooks is going to be about?
3: Well, as much as we um, are focused on history, history moves very fast, and so things that happened, let's say last year, could be you know potential subjects for us, and they are things that people are very interested in. So, we're Going to get started on kind of unpacking the 2022 crash with what is probably, we try and introduce subtlety, and there is a lot of subtlety to this, but um, you could definitely argue that Doquan and Terra were patient zero of the 2022 crypto collapse. And so that's our, that's our next season. We're going to go back to April and May of last year. And try and help people understand what the heck happened with this incredibly complex, deeply flawed project that managed to get all of these venture capitalists and hedge fund types on side. Despite the fact that professionals were screaming the entire time that it was doomed to fail and uh, an entire fantasy. So that's the next one. Do Kwan.
0: Exciting. In terms of the greater context of
3: the crypto collapse, I think
0: it's a really important topic to pick as patient zero.
3: Yeah, and it's a very complicated story, definitely one we still don't know from front to back, but it sort of has some historical lessons that go both ways in the sense that we don't want people to buy into the insanity of an algorithmic stablecoin again, but there were also sort of deeper historical lessons that we went back and unpacked, particularly having to do with previous currency pegs and how they broke and how traders broke them and made money doing it that uh, I think if people had learned those lessons, Luna never would have happened. So we're just trying to fill in some pretty obvious gaps in the knowledge of uh, a lot of people, it seems, involved in the industry, frankly.
0: Awesome. So David, talk a little bit about some of the prep that goes into writing the scripts, doing the research, getting everything ready to record this narrative podcast.
3: Yeah. In in a lot of ways, it's very similar to writing a book basically. Um, And I kind of did some math and each season in terms of the the writing process is about the equivalent of 80 pages worth of a book. And so like, that's just a big part of it is, is putting the narrative together, reading everything that we can get our hands on. One aspect that I find particularly fun is that there are a lot of other voices on this show. We, we're interviewing people, and you'll hear from figures who were major players. And one of the fun parts is doing those interviews, and then kind of being able to pick out the most crucial things that we hear from these people who were themselves players in in these dramas, and kind of figure out how they fit into the narrative in a sound and uh, explanatory kind of way. So that's just a fun part because you get to just have a fun conversation with somebody and then go through and troll through everything they said and, and, and pick the most interesting parts to share with the audience.
0: So, after everything's recorded, what are the steps to actually producing the show, getting into some of the music, getting your voice ready for the podcast? Talk about some of those post production steps.
3: Yeah, yeah. That's been another really fun part for me of the whole thing is that I actually don't have to do very much after I, I write it and read it into a microphone. Uh, we have a, a great production team. Including Eleanor, who is here today producing us. And they do a lot of editing to make me sound smarter than I actually am. And also, I want to give a big shout out to Altus Nomina, who is a friend of mine who we brought on to do music. And so we have a, an original score for every single episode, which I think is, is relatively rare for a podcast. So we, we try and keep it fun. So you're not just like listening to me talk for, for too long, although some
1: people. You seem to like the sound of my voice well enough I suppose always a key with the podcast I don't that's why I will never have my own narrative yes
0: same there's no way no way, no way. oh yes oh is that, that how you feel no I was saying people wouldn't listen to oh, my okay. podcast
3: well Danny all you need to do is smoke for about 10 years and uh you'll be fine
1: aye aye doctor <laughs> <laughs> all right so, so, David, tell me—you know—one aspect of the narrative form that we experiment with is the live podcast production. What's in store for uh, attendees of Consensus this year?
3: Yeah, we will be doing a, a Crypto Crooks panel at Consensus in Austin. Yeah, we're still trying to figure out the details, but uh, we are excited to present something there live, and eh, we might even make it something a little crazy. We'll
1: see. Exactly. I've heard that Satish will be on hand to answer questions. So mm. it should be fine. Well <laughs> probably you can get not
3: an AI Doquan. That's what I want. AI, I want an AI I'm, Doquan yes. hologram. AI Doquan. A
0: hologram well, you know, of Doquan would
1: be incredible. Even before everything fell apart, Doquan had trouble attending crypto conferences. He uh, it's so true. I don't think he's coming to this one under any circumstances, but a boy no. can dream.
0: <laughs> yep.
1: Thanks for joining us, David. And don't forget to remember to check out Crypto Crooks from the Coindesk Podcast Network to hear this story and more of all the bad ideas and good crimes that happen in crypto. (laughs) Woo! Check it
3: out.
2: Join Coindesk's Consensus 2023, where Web3 meets IRL, happening April 26th through 28th in Austin, Texas. Consensus is the industry's only event bringing together all sides of crypto, Web3, and the metaverse. Immerse yourself in all that blockchain technology has to offer creators, builders, founders, entrepreneurs, and more. Use code CARPE to get 15% off your pass. Visit coindesk.com slash consensus or check the link in the show notes.
1: Here's the scene. You're in a house. Lights are off. There's a door in front of you. You open the door slowly. Put out your hand. You're motioning around, trying to grab onto something. You feel a string. You turn on the light. In front of you, there are cobwebs. You push them aside, and you see a chest. You take the key out of your pocket. The key's been there for a while. You take the key... Sorry. You take (sighs) the key out of your pocket, put it into the lock, open the chest. You see a rope. You take the rope. You tie it off, and slowly you descend into the hole that's beside the chest. And now you're in Danny's Dungeon. Welcome to Danny's Dungeon. I am your guide, Danny Nelson, and today in the dungeon, we're talking Mangoes. We're talking Mango Markets. We're talking securities law. We're talking about how securities law applies to Mango Markets, does it? I don't know. But to bring our guests into the picture, Mango Markets is a Solana blockchain-based cryptocurrency exchange that's run by a decentralized autonomous organization, a DAO, so to speak. And that DAO is governed by people who own the Mango token. Now, the Mango token might be a security. And that's what the SEC says in its lawsuit against Avi Eisenberg, who is the savvy crypto trader and self-described game theorist, who, in October 2022, did a trading strategy that basically resulted in Mango markets losing over $100 million in crypto. And... Avi thought that he was following the law. The law says not so fast. He's been arrested, faces multiple federal criminal charges, including civil charges from the SEC, which says he manipulated the securities market, which means that Mango is a security.
0: Okay, Danny, I'm going to stop you there. So what is a security, Danny? Why would Mango be a security?
1: So a security is an investment contract that you or I can invest in with a reasonable expectation of profit based on the work of others. Now, that is the definition of security that the Supreme Court of the United States came to in a case that hinged on orange groves in Florida. Now it's being applied to mango markets in cryptoverse. And if mango is a security, then it basically means that you or I bought this token because we thought that number would go up because the developers slash creators of the token slash exchange have done work that has resulted in the accretion of value to the token. So basically, we bought Mango Markets token because we thought that Mango Markets would be a success and not because of our own efforts within it. So that's what makes Mango Markets a security, at least according to the SEC, which is alleging that in its case against Avi Eisenberg, that he was manipulating the price of it. But the big issue that Mango Markets faces is that if it's, as the SEC seems to believe, a marketplace that's dealing with a security, well, it's never registered that as a security. And if it's never registered it, then it might be sued by the SEC. So I'm wondering whether Mango Markets, which is currently not operational, is really going to move forward with an effort to come back online.
0: Did the developers discuss this when you were on the call with them last Sunday? Talk a little bit about what that was like kind of hearing some of the decisions to go back online and what it might mean for future regulatory actions that go down the line as we're in the dungeon. I'm using my dungeon voice, which, by the way, how do I take a rope from the top of the chest to descend anyways?
1: No, no, no. So, so there was actually a hook. I didn't, I should have mentioned the hook. I'm sorry. There's a hook above the chest and you tied the hook and you, you lower yourself.
0: Right. Thank you. Thank you.
1: I know I've, I go down the dungeon all the time, but it's hard for newcomers right. sometimes. It's a
0: very detailed, very detailed description. So thank I'm, you.
1: Yeah, this is how I. This is literally how I get out of bed every morning. I, it's like my my roommates say, you have to go to the dungeon first, Danny. You gotta beat the trolls. And I say, all right, fine. But Dave, next time you have to do it. Anyway, so yes, as you mentioned, in writing about Mango Markets, I attended the first developer call that they had held since Mango Markets went offline in October 2022. The big topic of discussion was the launch of Mango v4, which is Mango's return to grace, return to operation, a big upgrade that actually was planned before Mango went offline. And it never really seemed to be in doubt whether the developers would go through with Mango Markets, at least according to them.
0: So they're planning to continue operations as normal, reopen trading. Are there any differences from last time before they shut down?
1: Well, certainly they've patched the bugs or the conditions so to speak that allowed one trader to manipulate the price of their tokens in order to drain everyone's money but there are no changes that would address what the SEC is getting at here and I don't think one could expect there to be changes There's it's sort of a binary option that's a securities joke for you binary options but but you either stay offline and just You're happy with that. Or you come back online and you risk seeing what happens. There's a term, Cam, in securities law, it's called the FAFO policy. Do you know what FAFO stands for?
0: No, I have no idea. It's
1: it's the f*** around and find out policy.
0: Oh, love that. Yes, I around and find out all the time. That's all all I do every day. (laughs) On the scale of f*** around to find out. Where does this stand on the scale?
1: (laughs) Gary's basically saying f*** around and find out. If you guys want to see what happens with the SEC, then go for it. So I don't know what's going to happen. Usually the SEC brings its securities cases against parties that have broken the law in a criminal way in addition to a regulatory way, which is to say not just sold an unregistered security, but also took people's money and, and screwed them. And Mango hasn't done that here. What happened was someone else did that. So I'm not sure if that means that the SEC will actually come after Mango, but what is clear is that there's a big target on Mango's back now that hadn't been there before, and you really can't push that aside when you're thinking about how to proceed.
0: Of course, and I'm curious as well, since you are the Solana expert of Coindesk, you spend so much time covering the Solana ecosystem, you're very well versed in all of these different developer communities and always scooping something exciting. What does the rest of the Solana community have to say about it? Or what are some of the sentiments that you've heard from devs in this ecosystem?
1: Yeah, Kim, I don't know if I really am the Solana expert, but you can hear some of that expertise on Solana's validated podcast with Austin Federa. I went on to talk about crypto journalism in a recent episode. You know, everyone in crypto is very single-minded about their thing, and Mango hasn't been a big thing in Solana land for a bit so this conversation isn't really going beyond the pages of coindesk.com however some former developers that i've spoken to and current ones are, are praising mango markets for basically picking up this mantle and running with it because in their minds someone has to do it waving the flag in front of the bull because these questions it's not like they're just going to go away right you're gonna have to have a situation where the securities law faces off with these token exchanges. And Mango seems to be ready to take that on.
0: Whip something up. Well, you know what? We're going to be whipping today. Let's do some whippets.
1: (laughs) Sorry. <laughs> no,
0: not that type of whipping. I'm talking about getting in your new whip, vroom skirt, racing around, because we're talking about the disaster and burnt rubber of a situation that the Porsche NFT collection was this past week and what it all means for Web3 strategy when Web2 brands try to tap into some of these technologies. A lot of people were criticizing that there wasn't as much of a consideration for some of these creators and artists who have spent a long time in NFT technologies and really understanding their community, what products they're creating, why you can't have such a high floor price and high supply of a collection and expected to do well. So
1: Wait, wait, wait. hit the brakes, Cam, for a second. Let's just back up here. Yeah. What's the issue with the NFT? Is it that at the launch, it was just a really expensive mint price? Like... There there are ill-advised brand NFTs all the time. Why is this one so much worse than all the others?
0: It was a high mint price. 0.911 ETH is about let's say at the time 1400. It was about $1400 to mint one of these tokens and there was a very high supply. So because of that, there wasn't this immediate sellout or a lot of people super inclined to purchase these NFTs, especially because after the mint began they were below their mint price on the secondary market, which doesn't really happen all the time. It's not like you're—it's not like you're going to drop an NFT as a big brand and expect it to immediately be cheaper on places like OpenSea than on the actual website that you're selling it from.
1: Now there are lots of different ways to judge the success and the failure of a crypto project or an NFT. One of them is floor price, and if you look at flo- floor price, at least right now. The portion of tea looks like a success. It's it's got a floor of like around 2.5 ETH, which is well over mint. Why why is that so?
0: Well, they capped their mint after all of the criticism. Crypto Twitter had a field day. So many people were talking about how much of a flop this collection was, how it was such a bumpy road to get this mint off the ground. How people were racing into web3 without understanding the actual technologies behind it so they put the brakes on the collection and they decided they were going to cap the mint at around four thousand tokens so only that amount got minted and so of course because of that you know they maxed the mint because it was a smaller supply and the floor price went up it is listening to what web 3 natives have to say however it wasn't initially executed that way
1: so they threw it into high gear too quick, so to speak. They burnt out the engine, had to go into reverse, and now they've righted their ways, and this thing looks like it's uh, humming along, isn't it?
0: It's humming along now. I mean, there were countless pit crews trying to stop them for roadside assistance. This is getting out of hand. And... Oh
1: my god. We're going we're gonna to need to call in AAA or something.
0: So I will not, I will not stop until the finish line. Oh god. and yeah obviously it's starting as just this image of a white porsche on a white background it's not really that special but hopefully we'll see a little bit of development with these rarity traits where people can actually have a little bit of customization for their cars as well as their backdrops and then that can be resold but again there's no creator royalties there so like what are people going to do let's say you're an artist and you create a really cool porsche or you're super excited about the one that you created and you want to get some profit off of the resale, you can't. It's very interesting why royalties weren't a part of it.
1: All big ideas to consider. For me, I'm going to stick with my Volvo S80 from 2009, at least for now.
0: I don't know. It's, I'm, I'm actually curious, though. If you're listening and you bought a Porsche NFT, please tell us why. But that was Cam's Corner. Make sure you catch us next week. We'll be on track some exciting exciting things boo don't boo me
1: boo checkered flag i'm waving the checkered flag
0: that means i won you're right (laughs) that literally means i won so thank you all right that was carpe consensus i'm cam thompson danny thanks so much for joining thank you and if you're vibing with us if you're having a great time hearing about all this crazy crypto news that's gone down the past couple months please write us a review we want to hear how you're vibing with the show, if you're enjoying it, which I bet you are because it's always a very exciting time. And yeah, feel free to just talk a little bit about it and what you want to hear next. And next week, make sure you don't miss our upcoming episode. We have a very special segment, which I'm going to tease. I'm not going to say any more about it. So you have to listen to it now. And we'll catch you next Thursday.
1: Please leave those reviews. Our AI overlords are threatening not to feed us anymore if we don't start getting reviews on the show. So please, please, please Please, leave a review.
0: Please, please.
1: But only if you like us. We don't want your commentary if you don't.
0: We don't want any comments. No trolls. Bye.
1: Coindesk presents
3: Crypto Crooks Season 1 BitConnect. $2.4 billion. Thousands of victims. Mysterious deaths. Untold misery. Worldwide. Once you start digging, you never know where it might lead.
2: Carpe Consensus is a Coindesk production. Executive produced by Jared Schwartz. And produced and edited by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? email us at podcasts at coindesk.com subject line carpe consensus thanks for listening and see you next week